Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's again go to the Lord in prayer. Father, these are indeed perilous times, but we know that your people have always faced perilous times, and to whatever extent we feel that we are in a unique time of difficulty and threat and obligation of faithfulness, I pray that we would be mindful of the fact that this has been the calling of your people from the very beginning. As Paul went through the ancient world and proclaimed the gospel, and people came to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, and they they were encouraged to persevere in him. Paul's message was always the same. It is through much tribulation that we inherit the kingdom. And Father, it is so true that we have become so complacent in so many ways. We have trusted in our circumstances. We have trusted in the ease of our culture. We have trusted in uh, the relative ease that we have experienced as believers. It has not been necessary for us to be well-equipped, well-prepared saints. And I pray, Father, that you would indeed challenge us with how important it is, how blessed it is to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. And I pray that we would see it as a great privilege, not just a high calling, not just a responsibility, but but the richest of all blessings to know Christ, to be found in him, to be conformed to him, to experience in our own lives, in our own circumstances, what it is that he experienced as a son who walked before you faithfully. And that we would live out this resurrection life that we presently experience in the sure hope, the confident joy, that one day too, our bodies will be made to share in his resurrection as our spirits even now are. And as we are being transformed from glory to glory, I pray that, Father, we would walk in your spirit faithfully, that we would be sensitive and discerning of his work and his purpose, that we would hear and follow that still small voice. 
Even in this time, Father, in your providence, we are gathered in Christ's name in his life to be taught in him with the goal of growing up in him. And I pray that you will meet us, that you will encourage us. I pray that you will richly cause your spirit to fill us, to transform us. May these things that we consider be truly of the nature of worship and that which in all things testifies truthfully to our Messiah and causes his name to be glorified in our hearts and in our minds. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in Hebrews, last time we unfolded this prophecy of Jeremiah, the prophecy of the new covenant, that he, uh, this is actually, as I think I've said before, the longest citation in the book of Hebrews of an Old Testament passage because he wanted to lay the whole thing out and let his readers actually see what it was that God had promised, what this coming covenant renewal would involve. And again, the, the, the writer's goal is to, to ultimately show the truth of this assertion of his of a better covenant enacted on better promises associated with a better priesthood. And this prophecy that he cites from, we saw last time that the newness of this covenant is associated with the fact that it presides over a people who have actually come to embody in themselves what Israel's covenant relationship with God, Israel's own life with God was supposed to bring about, or at least what it spoke of, what it held forth. But now in the Messiah, what Israel's covenant relationship with God was supposed to be has been realized, not just in the Messiah, but in all who are sharers in him. That former covenant served as a pedagogue preparing for the day of fullness when the Messiah would come. And now that the Messiah has come, the pedagogue has fulfilled his role and therefore has passed to the side. That's the sense in which this covenant has become uh, obsolete. Not because it failed. Not because it was inadequate in the sense that it was flawed. But it has become obsolete precisely as having fulfilled its role. Having done what God called it to do. What God ordained it to do. And as I said last time, it's like now gladly, proudly, the pedagogue passes off the son who's well prepared off to the father who commissioned him so that the son and the heir can begin to now live in relation to the father and that inheritance in all truth and fullness. That's the newness of the new covenant. And so for these Jewish believers, he wanted them to understand that embracing Christ and this new covenant in him was not disloyalty to Moses. It wasn't disloyalty to the covenant with Israel. In fact, embracing Christ and his covenant was precisely faithfulness to Moses. It was precisely faithfulness to that covenant. Because what Moses and the covenant with Israel were all about was saying, here is the one who will be coming. 
Like I said, it was a pedagogue preparing for the coming of the Messiah. This is Paul's argument in Galatians, where he says, you who want to continue to be uh, bound by the law of Moses, you want to be faithful to the law of Moses. If that's true, why don't you listen to the law of Moses? Why don't you listen to uh, the Torah of God, which spoke of a coming one, which spoke of a, of a fulfillment that would come in a, in a messianic figure? If you want to be true to Torah, you embrace the one whom Torah spoke of, whom Torah promised. So embracing the new covenant in Jesus, they were agreeing with and actually upholding the law. That was what the law was speaking of all along, what the law was promising, what the law was holding forth, and the fulfillment that had now come in Jesus himself. So in that sense, Israel's covenant was foundational to the new covenant, just as the Levitical priestly system upon which that covenant was based was also foundational to, preparatory for the priesthood that has come in Jesus himself. This is, again, one of the writer's premises is that covenant and priesthood go together. Covenant is based on priesthood. Where there's a change of priesthood, there's a change of covenant. And as I said before, all of this development of Jesus' priesthood, its relation to the Levitical priesthood is ultimately to show how it's true and in what ways it's true and the extent to which it's true that this is a better covenant enacted on better promises. So the writer has shown that through the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah, the promise, even in the context of the Sinai covenant, of something that is coming, and therefore the transitory nature of that Sinai covenant, that it was non-ultimate. But now he turns his attention to the priesthood associated with that covenant, showing the same principle of preparation, of transitoriness, of of, of a symbolic prophetic significance in those things, ultimately then showing how that priesthood has yielded to the priesthood in the Messiah and the new covenant associated with him. So that takes us uh, through all of chapter 9 and then the first half of chapter 10. Before then, he begins to flesh out some of the implications of that. So the first thing the writer does is he summarizes the Levitical system in terms of the the uh, form and the structure of it, the place and the, 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 the circumstances in which that priesthood took place. Then he considers, in general terms, the, the priesthood associated with that Levitical system. Then he switches over to a comparison and contrast of those things with the priesthood associated with Jesus himself. So what I want to do today is just consider the first part of that, which is the Old Covenant sanctuary. The first five verses of verse 9, he talks about that sanctuary structure. The sanctuary itself, its furnishings, the things associated with it. Then in 6 through 10, here or 6 through uh, 10, yeah, he shows the priestly ministration associated with that sanctuary. Then he shifts it over to Jesus' ministration in connection with a different sanctuary, the sanctuary on which the earthly one was based. That's the argument that the writer's been making. So read with me then Hebrews chapter 9. We'll begin at verse 1 through the fifth verse. 
He says, now even the first covenant, covenant is implied, it's not actually in the text, but it's the one that he was talking about associated with Israel, the covenant at Sinai that the new covenant has now um, has supplanted or has taken the place of. Even that first covenant had regulations of divine worship in association with an earthly sanctuary, a material, physical, earthly sanctuary, cosmicon, related to this particular cosmos, this order that we know. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I want to talk about these features of that sanctuary. And then I want to conclude by drawing out some of the symbolism of it. My my thesis in this, and we've already seen this, is that not just the idea of the sanctuary but all of the particulars of the sanctuary, down to the numbers of boards, the sizes of the boards, the way the boards were constructed, the way they were fitted, all of the linens, all of the coverings, all of the fixtures, all of the furnishings, all of those things were precisely prescribed by God himself. None of them were left up to the discretion or the decision of the Israelite people or even Moses himself. And if that was the case, then in all of that, God was telling Israel something. There was a revelatory aspect to that. And recognizing again that all of this was to serve a preparatory role, then these things spoke of something that was to come. They had a symbolic significance. And that's where I want to conclude today. So look at the particulars themselves and then a little bit of what do we make of them? What was the importance of them? What were, what were these things telling Israel? And how do they ultimately look to what has come in the Messiah? So he describes this first in terms of the structure itself. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Hopefully we all know something about the Israelite uh, sanctuary. But just as a starting point, he's talking here about the tabernacle, the original tabernacle that Moses was given the prescription for on the mountain. He's not talking about Solomon's temple, which was an enlargement and an embellishment of that. It went beyond what was the prescription that was given to Moses on Sinai, or even more, the second temple, which replaced the first one that was destroyed by the Babylonians. He's talking about the original sanctuary. Well, that structure consisted of two rooms, a a courtyard and then two rooms. And he talks about the outer room as the holy place. That was the place of the daily ministration of the presiding priests. And he says that within that holy place, there were certain furnishings. 
He says that there was a lampstand and there was the bread of the presence. And also we're going to see the incense altar as well. All of those things, again, were prescribed by God. If you go back and you start at Exodus 25, and I'm not going to go back there, but the first thing God did after he gave the essence of the Torah at Sinai is he said, take a a contribution from the people to build me a sanctuary that I might dwell in your midst. That was the heart of the covenant relationship, God in the midst of his people. And then he begins to start unfolding all of what that dwelling in their midst is to look like. All of that was prescribed by God himself. So when he, the writer mentions these particular things, they weren't things that Israel came up with. They were things that God prescribed for his sanctuary. He mentions a lampstand. This is the menorah. It's basically like a tree-shaped main trunk with seven branches. And the cups, because they burned oil, the cups of the the individual branches were were formed. This was uh, an exquisite work of hammered gold. It was all gold. But they were shaped to look like almond blossoms. So it's like a kind of surreal, arboreal representation that is this lampstand. And it was the sole source of light in the tabernacle. You had multiple layers. You had the boards that were the basic framework. Then you had multiple coverings over that. You had the linens. Then you had the dye, uh, the the um, the goat skin made with goat hair fabric layer over that. And then you had another layer over the top of that. There were no windows. There were no openings. It was dark in there. And the only light in the tabernacle, certainly in the outer room, was from the menorah the lampstand, a surreal place with otherworldly light. The only other light would have been the luminescence of God's Shekinah, the glory cloud over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which we'll talk about. So God prescribed the exact form and structure and look of this particular menorah, he also prescribed the fuel for it, olive oil, pure, clear, completely refined olive oil. And part of the priestly ministration was to keep the oil filled and to keep the wicks trimmed. That lamp was never to go out day and night, perpetually throughout all of Israel's generations. That light was to be continuous in the tabernacle. And the lamp, I think, as much as anything, spoke to, again, this reality of Yahweh as Israel's light and life. Many commentators believe that Israel would have seen in this a kind of representation of the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden. A surreal, arboreal representation, but this was the light that filled the sanctuary. That was on the one side. On the other side was the bread of the face or the bread of the presence. We often call it the showbread, but it's the bread of the presence. It represented the presence of God. 
Loaves of bread made from a very refined, perfect flour. God, he, he defined the flour. He defined how, how much there was to be in each loaf. Twelve loaves, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel on, an, on a table made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Everything's gold inside of the tabernacle. Twelve loaves, six, uh, six in each row for the twelve tribes of Israel with frankincense, and that bread is to be rotated out every Sabbath, once a week. New bread brought in. The Kohathites, were, I believe, were responsible for that bread. But the priests ate that bread. When it was rotated out, the old bread, the weak old bread, is what they would eat. And that switching out was accompanied with burning incense. Frankincense was to be, and they, they kept it in a cup, but frankincense was to be with those loaves of bread on the table. The bread of the presence. He says, behind the second veil... There was a tabernacle, a room, which was called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant on all sides. Now, the difficulty with that is that most scholars believe, and even Israelite tradition teaches, that the altar of incense was actually not in the Holy of Holies. There was a veil that separated. Basically, the the tabernacle was a rectangular space. And there was a veil that went completely across from side to side that separated the Holy of Holies into a cubic space. It was as wide as it was tall as it was deep. And the altar of incense traditionally is is held to have been on this side of the veil. He treats it as inside of the Holy of Holies. And I think that there are at least a lot of things that could be said, but at least a couple things that can be said for that. Some say, well, he was just wrong. He didn't know the writer of Hebrews. But I think there are some reasons for him to associate it with the Holy of Holies. The first is that it was right up against the veil. The altar represented the gateway into the Holy of Holies. We're going to see next time the Holy of Holies was the space that no priest went into except for the high priest once a year. If only the priest went into the outer room, only the high priest went into the inner room. And whereas there was a daily ministration in the outer room, it was an annual event, Yom Kippur, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. But when he would enter into that space, he would take incense from the altar and he would take it in a censer when he went into the Holy of Holies so that the whole place would fill with the smoke of the incense. So the the incense altar was a part of the daily ministration, but it was also the gateway into the Holy of Holies. It was preeminently associated with the ministration in the Holy of Holies such that even when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the offering, both first for him and his family, then for all of Israel and the whole covenant structure, he would sprinkle the blood in relation to the Ark of the Covenant, but also sprinkle the the altar of incense as well. So the point is that the altar of incense was a central feature in the ministration of the Holy of Holies. So 
in that regard, even if it was physically on this side of the veil, it was very much at the center of the worship that took place in the Holy of Holies. So I'm going to leave it at that. But he, again, treats it as a part of the furnishing of the Holy of Holies, the second space, the cubic space. In actuality, the only thing that was inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a rectangular box. Again, you can read all of these dimensions and features in in the, the text of Exodus. But it was a rectangular box made of acacia wood, but all overlaid with gold. And on the top of it, it was a hollow box, but the top of it, the lid of it, the cover of it, was the kapareth, the mercy seat. It was all solid gold. It wasn't overlaid wood. It was solid gold. And the, the central feature of that cover on the Ark of the Covenant were the two cherubim. You may have seen pictures of it. And, and again, the, the version in Solomon's temple was much aggrandized. It was enlarged. It was embellished. But even the original one had cherubim facing each other with their wings stretched out upward and inward, touching in the middle. And that particular place, that particular space where the wings of the cherubim came together is where the glory cloud, the Shekinah, the presence of God was manifest in a luminescent way. When the scripture talks about, you know, the glory of God departing the temple, that's what it's talking about. And the promise of the glory of God returning to the temple. The glory of God was in that glory cloud. When they built the tabernacle and they completed it, you read this at the end of Exodus, then you see the glory of God in a, in a cloud descend and fill the fill the, whole, the tabernacle. But it ends up being that, that localized presence And that represented the place, not where God was just present, but the exact point at which heaven and earth came together. Israel viewed God as being enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. If he dwelt in the tabernacle, he most specifically dwelt in the Holy of Holies. He most specifically was present in the glory cloud between the wings of the cherubim. So the Ark of the Covenant was the one thing inside of the Holy of Holies. And nobody went into that place except the high priest once a year. Now when Israel moved, then Aaron and his sons had to go in and wrap and package everything in a certain way to be transported. But other than that, nobody went in to that space except the high priest. The writer gives the most attention to the Ark of the Covenant because it is the most significant feature of the tabernacle and its furnishings. But he mentions also the contents that are inside of the box. He mentions a jar of manna. And if you go back and you look, when God gave to Israel the manna, he said, you're to take a jar of it... I think an omer full of it, and you are to put it in the Ark of the Testimony. You're to put a container of that in there as a remembrance for the sons of Israel. 
Because again, the manna only lasted until Israel got into the land, right? It was God's provision for them through the time of wandering in the wilderness. But it was to remain forever in the ark as a testimony. It represented God's supernatural, miraculous provision. The actual word in Hebrew, manhu, it means what is it? It was something they'd never seen. It was like this, it was like that, but it wasn't an earthly, natural food. God didn't make a plant grow and say, go harvest this plant or whatever, and he didn't say, here, you know. It was something that, in a certain sense, fell out of heaven. It was bread out of heaven. They'd never seen anything like it. Manhu, what is it? It was God's otherworldly supernatural provision, God's bread to his people that underscored their obligation of dependence and gratitude and sufficiency in him as covenant father. He wouldn't end them as covenant son. He wouldn't let them store it. He wouldn't let them hoard it. He wouldn't let them keep it over except for the Sabbath. That's when they got the Sabbath obligation. Why are, why is there twice as much the day before? Because this is a Sabbath to the Lord. You don't harvest on the, or you don't gather on this day. But it spoke again of God's provision for them. And you see it even in the Deuteronomic idea that Jesus himself as the faithful son, the one who embodies and fulfills Israel's own vocation, you see it in that idea of what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, the provision of God. And you see it even coming forth in the idea of Jesus as the true bread out of heaven, right? John chapter 6. The second thing that he mentions is Aaron's rod that budded. That was also commanded by God to be put in the ark as a remembrance. But in this case, it was a remembrance of rebellion. If you recall in number 16 and 17, the issue there was this refusal of the appointment of Aaron and his sons to hold the priesthood. The Levites said, all the people are holy. Who do these guys think they are to lord it over us? And God said, take a rod from, for each of the 12 tribes, and on the tribe of Levi write Aaron's name, and then put all of those rods in the meeting place, and see what happens. And when they go back, the rod that had Aaron's name on it, it it was an almond rod, it had blossoms on it and even fully formed almonds, right? I believe it was almonds. But God said, take that rod and put it in the, the ark as a testimony. And you recall that that God's judgment went out against them because of that. So that was a reminder of Israel's rebellion against God's design, God's provision, God's authority in his leadership. And then the last thing that he mentions is the tables of the covenant, the tablets. And once again, God told 
uh, Moses put these tablets in the Ark of Testimony. That's why it was the Ark of the Testimony, because the ten words were in there. And we don't know, there, um, rabbinical tradition teaches that it was the second set of tablets. Remember, Moses broke the first tablets when he came down from the mountain. And then God had Moses go back up the mountain again, and, and he had him redo another set of tablets. And at that point, he told him, make a box to put them in to carry them down the mountain. Now, I don't think that that's the, the ark, because it's, it's just a box that Moses was to make to transport them. But traditionally, Jews have held that it was the broken tablets that went into the ark, rather than the second set. And we don't know for sure. But they represented, again, if the ark was the focal point in the relationship between God and Israel, that relationship was defined it was prescribed in this thing called the Tablets of the Covenant, the Ten Words. Well, that's basically what he gives us. And then his last closing point is he says uh, in verse 5, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Often that statement has been interpreted as that this must be after the temple was destroyed. It was too far down the road. Nobody could remember exactly what these things look like. Well, the Jews did remember. The fact that the temple was destroyed didn't mean that the knowledge of these things was lost. The idea is not that I cannot speak in any more detail of these things because I don't know anything more about it. But he's saying what I have told you is sufficient. It's not needful for me to go beyond that. I've made my point. That's what he's saying. So I want to then use the rest of the time to talk about the symbolism. How do we understand that? Remember again that the priesthood is the basis of the covenant. And this is the trappings of the priesthood. The next, next week, we'll look at the priestly function. But this is the realm in which the priests did their work, the circumstances and the, the setting in which they did their work. If this is all by divine prescription, then it must have a significance. God intended for this to say something to Israel not just about their present circumstance, but ultimately where things were going. Well, most generally, the sanctuary and everything associated with it spoke of this concept of sacred space, holy place. Sacred space in the sense that it, it spoke of, it symbolized the intersection of God's space and the creation's space. The intersection of the realm that God himself inhabits, if we want to call it the heavenly realm, and the realm of the creation. When God determined to put his name at Jerusalem, it was to not just be his name in an abstract sense, but again, God's whole point in the sanctuary was build me a dwelling that I might dwell in your midst. His name with his people meant that he would be present. 
And if Jerusalem was the place where heaven and earth came together, the tabernacle was even more that and even more the Holy of Holies. The scripture deals the ark with the ark as, again, the place of God's enthronement, the footstool of his feet. In a sense, God was enthroned in heaven, but his feet were on the ark on the earth. It was where, he- it was where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm came together. And so the sanctuary underscored God's faithfulness to his pledge in Eden. That one day he would banish the curse, he would end the creation's exile, and he would render all things reconciled and restored to himself through a chosen human seed. The sanctuary was the place where heaven and earth came together, but not in just some abstract religious sort of way. But it spoke to God's intent in creating in the first instance. God didn't just say, hey, it'd be nice to have a creation and I can make some creatures that, you know, I can feed or have fun with or whatever. And I can make this creature man that that I can tell him what to do and that'll be great or whatever. It, It wasn't that. God's intent to be in, with, through, among, to be all in all. The bringing together of of his own existence and a creation existence with man at the center. And the sanctuary spoke of that. So the arrangement and the details and the way in which God did this wasn't random or arbitrary. And whatever we think about the particulars of a particular furnishing or or the ministration associated with it, the big idea is this. God's presence in the world in connection with a place or a realm in which heaven and earth come together associated with a priestly ministration. So it was designed to reflect God's ultimate intention in creating in the first place, his ultimate intention in the creation. We talked about that in Sunday school, that Genesis 1 and 2 are not about the mechanics of how God created, but why, the purpose for his creation. What was his intent in creating? And you see that in the bookends in the scripture. Genesis 1 and 2 give us a picture of the purpose for the creation. And then we see it in a visionary way in Revelation 21 and 22. The new Jerusalem, the dwelling of God, configured as a cubic space, the holy of holies, descending out of heaven to bring heaven and earth together. Now the dwelling of God is with men, right? The bookends of the scripture tell us what's the big idea in the Bible, sacred space. The rendering of the whole creation is the dwelling of God, God being all in all. And that was reflected even in the way the tabernacle, the writer here doesn't deal with this, but God gave prescription even for how the tabernacle was to be situated and how Israel was to be situated in relation to it. The first thing is that the entrances into the courtyard, into the outer space, into the Holy of Holies were all on the east side. This was situated so that the east, all the openings were pointing towards the east. And the veils that were walked through in the tabernacle were embroidered with cherubim. 
And if you take that back even to the creation account, when the fall happened and you had the curse and the banishing of Adam and Eve from Eden, they were banished. The the entrance to Eden was where? On the east. Wasn't that the Steinbeck book, East of Eden? The entrance to Eden was on the east. And what did God do? He stationed cherubim there to guard the entrance to the garden. The fall meant alienation and exile, not just for man, but for the whole creation. And so the entrance into God's dwelling place was on the east, and even those fabrics, those linens, those panels, those veils were embroidered with cherubim guarding the entrance to God's dwelling place. The way the tribes of Israel camped around that was also very significant. Moses and the Levites, Aaron, the Levites were on the east side immediately closest. They were the barrier between the entrance into the courtyard and the rest of the people. Then you had three tribes on each of the four sides so that God was in the midst of his people. And on the east side, each of those four sides, one of the three tribes was the central tribe under whose banner the people would rally. When they packed everything up and moved on, they would march out under the banner of those lead tribes associated with the four sides. And on the east side, the lead tribe was Judah. And the other two tribes with Judah were Zebulon and Issachar, Galilean tribes. When the sun would rise, it would rise first on Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. Think of Isaiah chapter 9. There will be no more darkness and gloom. She who dwelt in gloom, no more darkness for her. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who dwell in darkness will see a great light. All of this was very intentional on God's part. Speaking to the circumstance in which Israel found itself, speaking to Israel's calling, Israel's function in the world, and speaking ultimately to where God was going with all of this. And so also, again, the priestly ministration itself testified to God's intention for his creation, that his presence in, his glory in, his relationship with his creation, that sacred space, if you will, would be mediated through a regal priesthood, through an image son. That's why covenant is based in priesthood. God said of Israel, even when he was giving them the covenant, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, if you keep my covenant. So my point is this, what was depicted in Eden in the creation account and what was symbolically expressed in the earthly sanctuary the sanctuary that was God's dwelling place during the time of the creation's exile. That's important. This prescription, this dwelling place, this presence of God, this manifestation of sacred space was God's presence in the world during the time of creational exile, the creation's exile and alienation. 
What was depicted in Eden, what was symbolized, symbolically expressed in the earthly sanctuary, again, God's presence in the midst of an alienated creation, looked to a future fulfillment when the heavenly realm would descend to be conjoined with the creation so as to transform it. So the earthly sanctuary then portrayed the conjoining of heaven and earth and all that that meant, the undoing of alienation, the undoing of the the curse. It portrayed those things, it spoke of those things, but while also perpetuating that alienation and that separation. It spoke of the bringing of heaven and earth together, but in the context of still a separation of heaven and earth. Why? The tabernacle was in the midst of Israel, but at a distance. The tabernacle was in the midst of Israel, but invisible to them. They couldn't get into it. They couldn't see inside of it. An entrance into it was very limited. An entrance into the presence of God was absolutely limited. So the bread of the presence in the tabernacle emphasized that Yahweh is the life and the sustainer of his people. But only the priests got to eat of that bread. And even in eating of that bread, they ate of it in the context of its own corruption. It was replaced every week. It would get stale. It would start to mold, right, if it was left long enough. Yahweh is the provision of his people, and yet all of this is still defined by transience and corruption. And not everybody could eat of that bread, only the priests. There's portrayal, but not yet the reality. There's heaven and earth coming together, but not really, not yet. The incense altar represented the divine human encounter and interaction, the worship of, men, of God by men. It's often associated, the incense going up, is uh, the smoke of the incense is associated with the prayers of the saints, right? The incense altar represented the communion between God and his human creatures between God and his covenant children, but again in the context of alienation. Evident in the ministration in the sanctuary, which was very limited, very tightly proscribed and prescribed, and also in its isolation from the covenant household, only the priest burned incense. It wasn't available to everybody. Israel's relationship with God, though he was right in the midst of them, he was removed from them. They had no access to him. This becomes very important in the argument the writer is going to be building about this superior priesthood and the superior covenant that have come in the Messiah. And so also the lampstand, which had a natural appearance, it, it, it looked like a kind of, of tree, an arboreal, uh, you know, obviously stylized, but it had the appearance of a tree with, with branches and a trunk and blossoms on it. It spoke of God as the true light of his creation. In the creative fiat, what's the first thing that God does? Let there be light. The first thing of ordering and filling is the bringing in of light. 
light before there's a sun and a moon. It's the light that is simply the glory of God as the first point of fruition, the first issue of ordering and filling in this creation. Darkness is over the face of the deep. Tohu wabohu. Uninhabited, uninhabitable. The first thing God does is flood it with the light of his own presence. The sanctuary spoke of that. There was no day or night in the sanctuary. The priest wouldn't know if he didn't go outside, whether it was day or night. There was no sun. There was no moon. There was the menorah, the constancy of a transcendent light, a supernatural light. And that should take us again to the way in which the new Jerusalem is portrayed in Revelation 21 and 22. There's no sun, there's no moon. It's not that there can't be a physical sun or moon. It's not a reordering of the physical universe in that way. It's that the Lord God Almighty is the light of the city and the Lamb is its lamp. There is no need of a sun or moon because the Lord God illumines it and the Lamb is its lamp, right? No day or night in the sanctuary, just the perpetual transcendent light, the perpetual illumination of of God's provision in that way. And then again, lastly, the ark most especially of all the furnishings signified sacred space, the place where Yahweh and his creation came together and thrown between the wings of the cherubim. And that space, the the most focal place where heaven and earth came together was the most restricted Nobody went in there but the high priest, and only once a year. Not only limited in that way, time, person, but also circumstance. God specifically prescribed how you go in, what you bring, how you prepare what you bring, what you what this is all about. And they would have to tie a cord around uh, the, the priest's leg or his garment because if God struck him down for whatever reason or something happened, they had to pull him out. They couldn't go in there to get him. The place where heaven and earth specifically came together was the most restricted place. There was no access except in a very limited prescribed way. So all of these things and the sanctuary itself spoke of God's intent for his creation but an intent, a design for his creation that wasn't yet realized. But the hope that one day it would be, all creation becoming sacred space. That's what you see portrayed in Revelation. The city is a cubic space, and I know people have tried to calculate based on the dimensions how many people you could stuff into there if it was like an apartment complex to figure out how many people are finally going to get saved. You know, we do those kinds of gymnastics, which is not the point. There's only one cubic space in all of the scripture, and that's the Holy of Holies. And the point is that now the whole creation has become the Holy of Holies. The summing up of everything, as Paul said in the Messiah, such that God is all in all. The goal of God for his creation is that he would flood it with his life and his presence and his glory. The glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the seas, centered in the human creature who is the image and likeness of God. 
man as royal priest who makes man who makes God present and exercises God's rule in the world. So from that vantage point, and you can read this in Revelation 21 and 22, but from that vantage point, I think it's easy to see why and in what sense the scripture regards Jesus as the true sanctuary. It's more than just he's the bread of life, he's the light of God. Those things are true. But the overall meaning of the sanctuary and its furnishings and its ministration shows us in what sense he is the true sanctuary, in what sense he is the cornerstone upon which living stones are constructed, how it is that we fit into this idea of God's sanctuary, his dwelling place, and how Jesus is the one in whom all things in the creation are summed up. The picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven such that now in truth the dwelling of God is with men and the creation becomes sacred space is itself a Christological truth. It itself speaks to God's intent in the Messiah, ultimately in realizing his design for the world. Well, that's just a little bit on the sanctuary itself. But again, God did all of this in order to teach Israel something. It wasn't just arbitrary. Gee, I want some worship. You know, yeah, burn a little incense. That'd be great. Um, yeah, why don't you change out that bread once in a while? That'd be great, too. It was all very intentional. But drawing upon what God had done and what he'd revealed and where ultimately this was going to go. God wanted this to be instruction for the people. They would understand. Well, we'll pick this up then next time, uh, continuing on with the the priestly ministration, just as he deals with the holy place and the holy of holies. So he's going to deal with, very briefly, the ministration in general terms of the priests, and then specifically the high priest, because that's the focal point as he gets to Jesus' own priestly ministry. Well, let's pray, and and I I want you to think about these things, even as it implicates us, not just particularly as individuals, but again, as God is building this everlasting dwelling place, the bringing of heaven and earth together in the Messiah, but in a new human community, the church as the dwelling of God in the Spirit, and how that plays into even our understanding and celebration of the table as we come to the Lord's table. Father, these are are glorious things. I, I mean, they truly are. And I pray that they're things that we meditate on. There's, there's nothing more glorious than recognizing, even to the extent that we are self-centered, and we want to make these things be about us and our salvation and our forgiveness and our eternal hope what it is that awaits us as part of this everlasting fulfillment. I pray that you would help us to see that the glory and the richness and the goodness, the loving kindness that you have purposed and manifested towards us as individuals is in this all-consuming, all-subsuming work in Jesus our Lord the glory of our own individual salvation, the glory of our own 
relationship with you and your love for us. And it is true that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. But in order that he might have a people for himself, in order that he might sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in himself, in order that he might present a creation bound up in himself to his God and Father that our God would be all in all. That's the glory of our salvation. That's the glory that we celebrate, that we rejoice in, that we humbly bow before when we come and partake in this table. And that's why we don't come as individuals. We come as a body. We come as a community. It's the reason that the early church celebrated the table as part of a communal meal. Not people sitting at home drinking a little juice and having a cracker or doing whatever they do. But it testifies again to your purpose and accomplishment in the Messiah. That we as living stones are built into a spiritual house. We together become the dwelling of our God in the spirit. In that way, we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you in Jesus our Lord. We are together the fullness of him who fills all in all. And when we consider this glorious preparation in the sanctuary and its ministration, we should be able to see how it's reached its fullness in Jesus our Lord and what it means for us as sharers in that. What it means that we are together the temple of the living God. Father, may these things be glorious to us. It can be so much information. It can be just a bunch of ideas and terms and concepts. But I pray that it would be living truth that captures our hearts and minds, transforms the way we think, the way we understand, the way we perceive ourselves, the way we perceive our calling, the way we perceive our destiny. Help us to think deeply on these things and to be transformed by them, even as we prepare to come to the table today, to testify again to what it is that you have accomplished in Jesus. We love you, Father. These things are so glorious. They, they transcend our ability to fully get our heads around them. But we thank you that as inscrutable as they are, that we are main sharers in them because you were pleased to have it be so. May we come truly as worshipers to your table. May it not just be an empty, hollow ritual. May it feed and nourish our spirits and nurture our faith in the one by whose name we are called. It's in his name and for his sake that we ask. Amen.